the thing about regret that makes it meaningful is that it lingers. The fact that something exists as a regret is itself a signal. And when we have regrets, they are data, they are information, they are signals, they're telling us something. And if we willingly say, nope, I don't want to hear this signal, or we say, oh my God, it's a signal, it's a signal that makes me a little uncomfortable, I'm going to dive under the couch and try to hide from it, that's bad too. What we want to do is we want to confront things. We want to think about things. We want to acknowledge things. And we want to hear that knock on the door and open the door and say, hey, what do you got to tell me? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. This past weekend on an extremely hot, humid, classic Midwestern summer night amongst the stars and lightning bugs, My wife and I attended her 20-year high school reunion. And there was something about being in that space, watching her reconnect with old friends, reliving moments from the past, laughing about shared experiences. It really brought me great joy, but it also got me really reflecting about my own high school experience. And I even reconnected to some regrets I have from that time. When I look back at high school, Dan, I really see a boy trying to find his way to becoming a man. And unfortunately, a boy who was on that journey alone. But I'm also a man today who has regrets about how that boy lived his life. When I look back, I see opportunities missed, risks not taken, relationships not had, experience not experienced. Really all the regrets are about what I didn't say, didn't do, didn't risk. And even the things that seemed so scary back then, in hindsight, seem so minimal today. In fact, what I saw as risky then, well, now I actually see it as the opposite and that the greatest risk was not taking it. Regrets are full of wisdom. They clarify what's important. They instruct and teach us on how to do and be differently. Regrets, if we allow them, are some of the greatest teachers. And as I drove home from that reunion, it was hard to not ask myself questions, hard to not think about my own regrets. Realizing that I regret connections not made, love not expressed, moments not appreciated, risks that I didn't take in high school, it made me wonder, What might be some things that I'll regret in 5, 10, 20 years from now? What do those regrets show me about what's important that help me look at the present and practice what's important? What might 50-year-old Dan regret? Now, I suspect the future me would regret any moments big and small where I didn't strive to show up as the best version of myself, one who acted from a deep knowing of who he is and what he cares about, instead of really worrying about perception or expectations. Future Dan would probably regret missing the little things, not the big, not cherishing the tiny moments with his daughters, the precious conversations, not catching the sunsets, not holding, loving, connecting with my wife and our partnership, not nurturing and cherishing relationships with others. I'm so grateful for high school Dan for so many reasons. I appreciate his curiosity, his drive, his resiliency. But I think what I'm most grateful now, what I realized on that drive, It's what he teaches me through regrets. For it's in reconnecting with the regrets of the past, regrets from his path, that I really get to be with the present and see the future in a whole new way. And part of what supported such a productive and reflective drive from the 20-year reunion was listening to the conversation that I am thrilled to share with you all today. Jerry is joined by best-selling author Daniel Pink to talk about his newest book, The Power of Regret. In this conversation, Daniel shares his own journey to writing the book, the surprisingly common regrets that we share, 
and the tremendous opportunity available to all of us in paying more attention to our own regrets. Perhaps this too will help you learn through your past how to engage with the present and your future in a whole new way. Enjoy. At Reboot, we believe radical self-inquiry is an integral part of our continual practice of growth and self-actualization. Creating a practice of radical self-inquiry allows you to notice what happens in your experience from a different vantage point, one of curiosity. It is through radical self-inquiry that we learn to become more of ourselves, more like ourselves, more authentic, more human. We've developed an assortment of free self-guided email courses to support you in taking a deeper dive into radical self-inquiry. Whether you're looking to revamp your relationship to work, better understand your anxiety, explore your shadow side, reevaluate your co-founder relationship, or become a better listener, we've got you covered. All of our courses offer valuable content and prompts for reflection and journaling on a personal, professional, and practical level. Valuable for any leader at any stage. Explore our full suite of free course offerings at reboot.io slash resources. Daniel, it's a real delight to have you on the show today. Typically, I ask people to introduce themselves and I started doing that mostly because I would mangle last names. So, but yours is actually easy to. I pronounce. got a pretty easy last name. Yeah, let's see how you would do this. Uh, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself? My name is Daniel Pink, and I am a writer. I write books about business and behavior and the intersection thereof. Books that try to help people see their lives a little more clearly and live them a little bit more fully. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years, which is why I need a sabbatical, which is how you and I <laughs> connected. All right. <laughs> We're going to go right there. So, so is that how we connected? I know we connected via Twitter because uh, I remember we you. We connect. I, I, I know how I know how we connected. I mean, I, I, I known of you. But what happened is I heard an interview with you where you said something that I could not get out of my head which was the question of how complicit are we in conditions we say we don't want. Yeah. And I found that to be a profoundly important insight, one I'm still thinking about. And mm. I happen to have listened to that because I truly, Jerry, was contemplating a sabbatical and wasn't sure exactly how to do it. And so that interview was extremely it was more enlightening than I than I had any right to expect. Oh, well. And it was an interview with, on, the Tim, on the Tim on the Tim on the Tim Ferriss show. I should say yeah, for all you and, listeners and, out there who, yeah. That that that's right. Tim is Tim is a dear friend, and uh, I'll tell you how that episode came about. We were emailing back and forth, and I think at some point he got my autoresponder that said something like, "Hey, folks, I'm on sabbatical." And he's like, sabbatical. I want to talk about sabbatical. And uh, it took us a couple of months to schedule things, as, as is the want. But um, so what was it that was happening for you that drew you in first into the whole notion of sabbatical? And then maybe we can spend a little bit of time on that question. Well, um, what, what drew me into the topic of, of sabbatical was, was that I've been 
you know, I've been writing books for, I've been writing books for 20 years and mm -hmm. it is, um, I feel like the amount that I'm learning, the amount that I'm growing isn't rising as sharply as I would have wanted. And so I feel like it might need a punctuation mark, um, not uh, just a punctuation mark to stop and reflect and think about, you know, what I might want to do for the next five years, let alone the next 15, the next, next 20 years. I mean, one of the things that you write in your book is um, somewhere in there is the, I, the danger of thinking that our lives have to progress up and to the right. And, and, and I feel like, you know, I think that's another profoundly important insight. And so one way to interrupt that belief, I think, is to take a pause. You said it very well. I think that that's exactly right. And, and um, I didn't expect you to reference my own book here. We're, we're here to talk about your book. But uh, I'll say this. I think that if you recall from the book, there's a, a chapter called Standing Still. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a power in the standing still. There's a power in pausing. Yeah. There's a power in yeah. just reconsidering. And, you know, the truth is, I think, um, you know, whether you call it the great resignation or the great reexamination or whatever it is that we're going through, there is a profound shift that's happened, I think, in our society and um, the value of standing still. Uh, may be hitting closer and closer to home. Yeah, and, and, and also the examining the question of whether we are in motion for motion's sake, not to necessarily go anywhere, but for the sake, be, because standing still can be uncomfortable be, and, be, and being in motion, even if it's not in any particular direction toward any kind of purpose, can be soothing and reassuring. I think that mistaking motion for meaning. Yeah. Uh, is uh, kind of a national, maybe international uh, epidemic. Um, not only do we need to see ourselves as moving up and to the right in this constant experience, but we need to see ourselves as a kind of a machine constantly outputting. Yeah. In order to quiet the sense that I am nothing unless I'm producing. <laughs> right. right? And I'm going to talk to you like a writer, right? I'm in the middle of a second book right now, and you'll probably resonate with this. If I'm not typing on the keyboard, it doesn't feel valuable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, doesn't matter that some of my best insights come to me when I'm riding my bike. And it doesn't matter if some of my best insights come after two or three days of resting. The sensibility I can carry is that I must be always moving forward. Does that resonate? Sure. Um, now, that, that's something as a as a writer that I've, I think I've done a reasonably good job of reckoning with, just because I've been doing this for a very long time. And I do recognize that when I run, at some level, the idea is still incubating and I will come up with a phrase or an idea or a concept or a question while I'm running. And, you know, and I do recognize that, and I sometimes violate this, that, that, that taking breaks in, in the writing process is actually part of the performance, not a deviation from the, 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 the work. So, so I've done a pretty good job of reckoning with that as a writer, as a human being, less so. I was just going to make that connection because 
I'm going to feed back to you what you just said. You recognize that taking breaks is part of the process, except when you're just talking about living your life. Yeah, that's true. That's 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 true. I mean, when you think about it, it's an, it's a, I mean, I do think that there's something to that for me personally, which is that I recognize as a professional, as someone who has writing as a profession. OK, that's my job. It's what I do. Right. In the same way that an athlete's it's an athlete's job or a musician's job or an actor's job. It's what I do. It's a profession. It's something that I show up to and do my work because that's what professionals do. And, but I also recognize that being a professional, part of that is that professionals take breaks. One of the things that I've discovered is that, is that you know, we had it, I had it wrong for many, many years. I always thought that amateurs took breaks and professionals powered through, and that's bullshit. Professionals take breaks. Professionals know how to take breaks. And so I've gotten better as a professional at, at taking breaks, whether I've gotten better as in the non-professional parts of my life of taking a pause or taking a break is, a different issue. So what, in what ways has it served you to, in your life, to not take breaks? Well, I mean, it could be that it, it served me and it, it served me by replacing meaning with motion. That it could mm -hmm. be that for me, being in motion and doing stuff gave me an excuse not to examine deeper questions about who I was and why I was put on this planet. That could be. Mm -hmm. Sounds reasonable. What was it about the question that Tim and I were bouncing around? How have I been complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? What was it about that question that struck you? And well, what struck me, what, what, what struck me is that I think I listened to, I listened to it at a time where I was, where, where like, like many people today, um, I felt a, a sense of burnout. Um, I felt a sense that I was, uh, working twice as hard to go half the speed, to get half the distance. And the, the question then, and, and it's easy to say in those kinds of circumstances that, oh, it's like some kind of external force, it's, some, it's circumstantial, it's about the environment, blah, 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 blah. But it made me stop and say, okay, how, how am I complicit in creating these conditions? And, I, and, and again, I, I didn't conclude from that question, oh my God, I am guilty of sin. It's entirely my fault. I am, I am a, a chronic self-sabotager. I am self-hate, you know, I didn't go, I didn't go you all didn't the way down, it. down that path. But it did yeah. make me stop and say, okay, you have some agency in the conditions that you're living in. So what is it about these conditions ha have you created that you want to dial back? So again, I have no answers. I just have a lot of, I just have a lot of, I, that, that, that question spurred more questions for me. Well, that means it's a good question, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, I want to bring your attention to the use of the word complicit in that statement. Um, because you, you immediately went into that state that I fear people go into. And you noted that you didn't go into it, which is great. I often fear, because I see that question now all over, I often fear that people are turning it into, how am I responsible for the conditions of my life? And mm -hmm. that's actually not the way it's phrased. And what I like to point out is when I use the word complicit, I'm referencing accomplicing. I'm referencing yeah. driving the getaway car, not sticking up the bank teller. Right? Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, Although and, both are crimes yeah. under 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 both federal and, and state <laughs> statutes, both are crimes. They're crimes that they're, they're crimes that have different components and they're crimes that have different penalties attached to them. But they're both crimes. They're both crimes. I will grant you that. But there are different levels of agency and responsibility. And that's why they have different punishments. Mm -hmm. right? And so the complicitness is really important because one of the phenomena that people go through is to look at their, uh, the experience, the negative experience that they might be having, burnout, for example. And they, they look at it and instead of just pushing away all responsibility and continuing to move, they start to internalize, over-internalize responsibility. Yeah. And then what gets lost is the lesson. What gets lost is the ability to actually grow in that moment. Right? And this is, it, that, that's a similar phenomenon in how people reckon with regret. That is, that is, there are, that in some cases there's a, in many realms of life, there's a third way. We tend to think of things as, as very, you know, in a polar way. But there's often, right. I don't even say a middle, middle ground, it's, it's more triangulation. And so, you know, with regret, this, you know, negative emotion, some of us say, blot our ears, put our fingers in our ears and say, blah, 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 nah, 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 nah. I don't hear anything, no regret, no regret, no regret, and we ignore it. And others get, get, get captured by it and wallow in it. And that's bad too. What we want to do is we want to Think about things, these these kinds of things. We want to confront these these kinds of things. Sort of an honest, thoughtful, an honest, thoughtful confrontation, rather than a flight to safety by ignoring or the the bashing ourselves for self-flagellation for our many weaknesses. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I once had a friend call it the guilt sponge, the the the, the guilt sponge of soaking up all of the responsibility. And then, therefore, actually being disconnected from whatever important lesson might be implicit in the whole thing. At yeah. the same, and it's just as um, negative as claiming no responsibility, claiming no agency in this in situation. So it's curious that that question landed for the writer of The Power of Regret. <laughs> really curious for me. Why did you write that book? Well, I wrote it in part because, um, you know, I, I write most of my books out of a sense of out of a sense of curiosity uh, where, you know, I feel like if I'm curious about something, if I'm trying to work something out, if I'm trying to make sense of something then other people are, too. There's an old journalistic adage, always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. And I and I tend to I tend to buy that. And so what happened to me, though, is that is that I was at a point in my life where, to my surprise, I had mileage on me. I sort of looked up one day and suddenly realized that, you know, 20 years had gone by and I'd been engaged in this profession and I'd been doing these things. And suddenly there was space to look back on. And now, fortunately, I also think that there was plenty of space to look forward on. And so when you look backward, you inevitably think about what you did wrong. And then I had some markers in my life like, like you know, like a kid graduating from college and so forth. And I just started thinking, reflecting on my own regrets and, and I'm a bit and, and thinking about what it meant. And one of my sort of theories of the case as a writer is that I, be, I, I believe in socializing ideas, that if you have an idea, you talk to people about it. You put it out there. Like, too, I think too many people think, oh, I got to keep it because someone's going to steal it. They're not going to freaking steal it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so you socialize it. And one of the things that I noticed when I was talking to people about these, these regrets and kind of, you know, have you ever thought about regret? You know, it's like, and I started talking about my regrets is that people, they, they leaned into it. They, they welcomed it. They actually saw it in some ways as an invitation to share their own regret. And when you have that kind of, and, and, and again, so this is where 20 years of experience gives you some guidance where it's like, whoa, hold on a second. That's a serious response right there. Uh, that, right. that shows me that I'm onto something. And so to make a long story longer, I actually was writing an entirely different book and I put it aside, took a month to look at the existing academic research on regret. And then I spent about another three weeks writing an entirely new book proposal. And to the surprise of my editor said, hey, this book that you think that I'm writing for you, I've stopped writing because I think I have something mm. better. Mm. Mm. And you had enough credibility that the editor probably said, okay, let's go. Um, Not let's immediately. Go. Not immediately, but it was the, you know, it began the, it began the, it began the conversation. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did you discover in, the, in that interim period where you were writing one thing and then moving into the other? What did you discover? Well, what I, what I discovered when I put away the, this one project and started this, other, and again, just look at the academic research on regret was there were, there were a few things. Number one is that it was, it was ubiquitous, that, that it was, that it was, it, it was more, it was a more fundamental part of our cognitive machinery than I had, had imagined that it wasn't this kind of like, that it wasn't like an emotion that is, you know, we're going to lie, you know, we're going to think about the various emotions we have. And this is actually, it's an interesting one, but it's not that important. It was like, no, this is actually an, this is an essential emotion. Uh, and, and it's essential as part of our cognitive machinery that it, that it mattered more than I thought. So, so the ubiquity of it, um, uh, really intrigued me. The complexity of it intrigued me too, because it requires, you know, it requires some sophisticated thinking to, to experience regret. And then, when you look at those two things, you realize, and, and look at some of the other research, you realize, holy crap, this is actually a useful emotion if we treat it right. And so, for me, there was this gap between our perception of this emotion and the the reality, the reality that science was telling us about this emotion. And so, I found that intriguing. I'm going to extrapolate from that story and take you back just a bit to the realization. You said your daughter was graduating high school, seminal college. Moment. College. Okay. Yeah. I have three kids, 30, 29, and soon to be 25. So I, I hear you, brother. Um, uh, there's this moment in time where you're sort of starting to look back on your life. You're starting to feel regret. And just out of curiosity, what were the things that you were regretting? Well, when so so I, I was I actually was it, it, there was a moment actually when I'm at this graduation um, where I started thinking about my own college experience in part because I was so flustered by the fact that this this little kid this person who was just born is suddenly in a cap and gown graduating from college and also that 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 I'm old enough to have a kid graduate have from a college because I'm age. like because I'm like 27. How can I have a kid right. graduating from college when I'm 27, 28 years old? Uh, and right. so as I started thinking this through, I started it just in that moment, started thinking about some of my regrets about college. And I was very happy in college. Um, but I started to think, God, I wish I had been kinder. That was a big regret of mine um, mm -hmm. in general, in early in my life. I wish I had been a kinder person. Uh, I wish I had actually worked a little harder. I wish I'd taken more risks. And, um, and again, I started just, you know, I, I wasn't, those were, these were not debilitating 
regrets at right. all. They were just, but but they weren't positive. There was, I was, they were, you know, because regret is a negative they were emotion. Painful. Yeah, they were they were pain, they were they were uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It wasn't searing pain. It was it was they were mm-hmm. uncomfortable, and. Mm-hmm. I think in part because of that discomfort, I wanted to, you know, I just mentioned it to people. And that's when I found that people really wanted to talk about this, that that somehow this idea that this this the whole notion of regret has been uh, has been cloistered. It's been made taboo. Um, and everything I've done over the last couple of years and doing this research suggests that this is something people want to talk about. This is something that is actually healthy for people to talk about. This is something that is actually important for us to grapple with. And so that's why I decided to write a book about this and do, you know, not only look at the academic research, but do two big research projects of my own to try to crack the code. The, the, I'm imagining, I could be wrong, but I'm imagining that part of what people want when they want to talk about regret is they want to talk about and alleviate some of the discomfort that you were feeling. I think that's part of it. And I think that's actually difficult. And here's the thing that, that is mm. the, the thing what we know about regret is this, that number one, it is ubiquitous. It really is that there's a pile of, there's a pile of research showing that it is one of our most common emotions of any kind. It's arguably our most common negative emotion. Um, it is something that exists in almost all of us. The only people without regrets are little kids because their brains haven't developed. People with brain lesions and certain kinds of neurodegenerative disorders and sociopaths. Everybody else has regrets. Uh, and, and the thing is, it's unpleasant. And so there's a riddle here. So you have this thing that, that is, is, is universal in the human experience, at least in, the, in people with functioning brains. And it's unpleasant. So what's going on here? It's like, why are, why are, why is something that's so unpleasant so ubiquitous? And the answer is because it's useful. Because regret does things that other emotions don't do. And what regret does is that it clarifies what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. But, Jerry, to your point, it's, in, it's uncomfortable. And while we want the clarity and while we want the instruction, we might not want the discomfort. And I'm sorry, that's not the bargain. The, 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 the clarity and the, the instruction comes from the discomfort. So when, when, and you, and in the book you talk about, you know, encountering people with those tattoos that they regret, which is no regrets, right? And especially the ones that are misspelled. Um, what is it that they're trying to push away when they say, when they declare no regrets? What are they pushing away? I think that they're pushing away the I could, it could be a couple of things. I think it, I think part of it is is simply the their own the, the way that other people perceive them. So mm-hmm. if they fear that if they acknowledge regrets, if they acknowledge mistakes, people will think less of them. Um, that's mm-hmm. a mistake for reasons that we can talk about. Um, and I also think that it is a they don't want to deal with the discomfort of facing up to themselves in some ways. And so what they do is they, they, they broadcast no regrets as a, as a display of courage, but it's performed courage. It's not actual courage. It's performative courage. And what I've discovered is that real courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. So um, I love this. It's, we're, we're, we're looking at, in a sense, a topic I often work with with clients who are leading organizations 
but through the lens of regret. And so um, you made an interesting intellectual leap. You talked about acknowledging regret and then acknowledging mistakes. And even though they're kind of like kissing cousins, mm-hmm. right, I don't know that you necessarily made mistakes by focusing on one thing versus another. But in hindsight, which is another interesting term here, I can look back and say, I should have spent time on X, not Y. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are, there are, there are, there are mistakes that, there are mistakes that we make that don't trigger regret. The thing about regret that makes it meaningful is that it lingers. So I've made all kinds of mistakes. I probably, you know, I probably made mistakes last week that I've completely forgotten. I've certainly Mm -hmm. made mistakes last year that I no longer even Mm -hmm. recall. And so that's a mistake that isn't a regret, but there are other kinds of things. There are other kinds of blunders, missteps, screw ups that stick with me that I do regret. And those things are very telling. So the fact that something exists as a regret is itself a signal. And that's what I'm trying to get. That's what that's the point I'm trying to make in this in this book, that when we have regrets, they are data, they are information, they are signals, they're telling us something. And if we willingly say, nope, I don't want to hear this signal or and and so we blat it away or we say, oh, my God, it's a signal. It's a signal that makes me a little uncomfortable. I'm going to dive under the couch and try to hide from it. That's bad, too. What we want to do is we want to confront things. We want to think about things. We want to acknowledge things and we want to hear that knock on the door and open the door and say, hey, what do you got to tell me? Let let, let me build upon that and expand it into um the kind of advice I would give um, a client, and that is um, client's perception of strength and leadership correlates to that kind of no regret attitude. Yeah. It, it correlates to the do not acknowledge mistakes. We've seen presidential leadership that's had trouble acknowledging mistakes. We've seen leadership in political realms. We've seen p- leadership all across uh, the spectrum, struggling to acknowledge mistake, uh, regret, and and then from that place of authentic, honest dialogue, be able to sort of say, and therefore we're going to change in this way. We're going to do something different in this way. And uh, in my experience, those of us who have less power than those who have power, when someone who has power has the ability to internalize, in your term, regret, to internalize and confront the mistakes, we create the conditions of safety for those of them underneath to be able to do the same thing. Amen. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the, the other, and so, and there's, again, I think that's, intuitively correct. There's also some decent research showing this, that, that when we, uh, both in terms of the, the effect, how people view us when we disclose our mistakes, mm-hmm. our vulnerabilities, our fear is that people will think less of it. There's 30 years of behavioral science saying that in general, not in all cases, but in general, people think more of us. But what's more, I think even more important is what you're describing is the knock-on effect, that taking those actions actually establishes the conditions of psychological safety that allow other people to do their best work because they are able to take sensible risks, speak up, do the kinds of things that 
that otherwise they felt thwarted on because the leader is saying, hey, in this place, here's the way it works around here. We disclose our mistakes. We talk about them. We're honest about them. We don't ignore things. We don't cover things up, but we also don't beat ourselves up. We are actually grownups who have real conversations about real issues. I think one of the uh, uh, prerequisites to having that kind of honest dialogue uh, is the individual being willing to actually acknowledge the mistake to themselves first Interesting. and foremost? Yeah, right. There's there's a there's a Buddhist tale that I tell in the book of a famous meditator named Milarepa, and Milarepa is famous because among his poems and songs he wrote, he spent 20 years meditating alone in a cave, and one day he goes out gather firewood and he comes back and the cave was filled with demons. And in Buddhist cosmology, those demons represent uncomfortable thoughts, negative feelings, all sorts of things. He looks at the, the demons and he says to him, I'm going to teach them the Dharma. And so they all sort of sit down like little children and listen quietly, but actually they stay in the same spot. He then realizes that nothing's going to change. So he, tell, he turns to them and says, what are you here to teach me? And one by one, they start to disappear. Hmm. Hmm. But there's one that remains. And the one that remains is the worst demon. It's the blood-curdling monster of a demon. And to that one, he puts his head up to the mouth of the demon and he says, eat me if you wish. And then the demon disappears. And I think embedded in, in that story is an instruction about how to actually confront remorse, confront regret, confront the mistakes that we have. It's, it's powerful that when someone who has power is able to model that for others, but it's extremely important that we do that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. The self-delusion that says, I have no regrets, is actually quite dangerous. It's, I agree. It's, it, is, it, is, it is extremely dangerous because it's, it's a form of self-delusion. And right. it's also, it's, it, so, it's, so there's an inherent danger in deluding ourselves. But it's also, and here's the thing that I'm trying, for, forget about, you know, maybe you want to delude yourself, maybe, maybe you don't. Some, some, some delusions are useful. However, no regrets, don't look backward, always be positive is a terrible blueprint for being effective. It's a terrible blueprint for being a contributor. It's a terrible blueprint for fashioning a life well-lived. Um, and so, so, so it's a combo platter. It is delusional and it's ineffective. Okay, so I'm gonna evoke you as a dad. Your daughter graduated. She's off into the world. She's in her 20s, which, by the way, as your older brother, I'll tell you, the 20s are the worst. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give her going into her 20s? And you don't get to just say, well, you know, have lots of regret. On I, wouldn't this tell issue, her, I, I wouldn't tell her to have lots of regret. What I would tell her based on what I would tell her based on what I know from this research and regret from the, spending the last two and a half, three years immersed in this, it, it would be would be a few things. Number one is that I think it's a pretty safe bet if I talk to her. The, she's twenty. So my elder daughter is twenty five. The, the the twenty the the you of of at age thirty five. 
I think it's a pretty safe bet what that you of age 35 are going to care about. And the you of, the you of age 35 is not going to care whether you had a blue car or a gray car. The you of, 20, of, of 2032 when you're 35 years old is not going to care what you had for dinner tonight. There's a very small number of things that that you of age 35 is going to care about. And what the, they're going to care about is like, did you build a reasonably stable foundation for your life? Did you have a, did you take sensible risks? Did you do stuff? Did you learn and grow and live? Did you do the right thing? And did you build connections with people who you care about and who care about you? And, and most of the other things in your life aren't going to matter very much. But if you blunder any of those, it's going to gnaw at you 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Take it from me and having spent 50 years on the planet and take it from, and, you know, in this book, I collected regrets. We now have collected regrets from over now over 19,000 people in 109 countries, and they all regret the same kinds of things. And so listen to this chorus of people and, you know, you can make a safe bet about what's, what's going to matter to you in 10 years and navigate your life accordingly. What do they regret? Well, what I found is that is that people regret this four, four core things um, around the world. And it has less to do with the domain of their life than something underneath it. So one of them is what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret small actions early that, that screw up their lives later on. Mm-hmm. Smoking, uh, other bad health decisions. Um, a lot of regrets about spending too much and saving too little. Um, mm-hmm. There was nobody who regretted being too frugal. There was nobody who regretted you know, oh, I saved too much money. I was too frugal. I was, you know, nobody had any regrets about that. Um, so that's foundation regrets. Second regret, a very important, very important one would are boldness regrets. Boldness regrets run the gamut. So I have people like in my database, a lot of American college graduates uh, who regret not studying abroad when they were in college. Okay, that's an education regret. Then I have people who, a lot of regrets about people who didn't ask somebody out on a date 10 years ago, mm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, mm. a lot of those. A lot of regrets relevant to your audience about people who stayed in lackluster jobs and didn't go out on their own, who didn't start a mm. business, who weren't entrepreneurs, who didn't act entrepreneurial, mm. who focused more on not failing rather than on succeeding. So all mm. those regrets to me are the same. It's if only I'd taken the chance. You're at a juncture in your life, you can play it safe, you can take the chance. Um, and overwhelmingly, uh, people regret not taking the chance. Third category, moral regrets, very interesting category. Uh, and this goes to some of your questions about, about guilt and remorse. You're, mm-hmm. Again, a lot of these regrets begin at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. People do the wrong thing. Not everybody, but a lot ultimately regret it. And so we have a lot of regrets about bullying, a lot of regrets about marital infidelity, a lot of regrets mm-hmm. just about like just being a... a Bad not person. their best not, self. Yeah. They're not their best self. And actually sort of knowingly doing something wrong. It was not like they, oh, my God, I had no idea this was a getaway car. You know, you talk about it's like, yeah. no, you knew exactly what you were doing. And at the time you knew it was wrong. And you did it anyway. Fourth category, connection regrets. These are regrets about relationships, mm-hmm. not only romantic relationships, I mean, mostly not romantic relationships that were intact, but that come apart usually slowly and undramatically. And people don't do anything about it. And it bugs them. And sometimes it's the, the drift is so great or people die or there's conditions change where you can't do anything about it. And so over and over again, these are the things that pe- these are the things that people regret. And what they what these regrets tell us, I think, Jerry, is that they tell us what again, as, I think regret is a clarifying emotion. These regrets are telling us 
people are telling me what they value most, that, that these four core regrets operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. And that way, and that's another way that regret is clarifying and instructive about how to lead a better life. How does this loop back into, you're listening to Tim and I have a conversation about sabbatical. You're understanding the value of taking a pause as a writer. How does this loop back? How might it loop back into your own sense of what you might be regretting? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, and, and I think that for me, what it might be is that, okay, am I simply sort of going, sort of, uh, do I have so much um, momentum? Is, is, there, is there inertia in that there's something that I know how to do reasonably well, and I do it reasonably well, and I can keep doing it, but is that actually the, the best move, the, the thing that I should be doing for, for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Uh, and the only way to stop doing that is to affirmatively interrupt that. And there might be regrets for me about boldness. You know, was, you know, was I appropriately bold? Did I use this? These boldness regrets are very interesting because I think they're mostly about more. I, I think they're, they're largely about mortality. That is, mm-hmm. we recognize that we are on this planet for a vanishingly short amount of time. And so we want to do something. We want to live. We want to grow. We want to contribute. And so for me, it's like I don't a sabbatical might be a pause where I can say, okay, is this, is this pause brief couple month pause, a way to avert boldness regrets later on. And then certainly connection. I mean, the two biggest categories are boldness regrets and connection regrets. And one of the things that you see in connection regrets is that what gives our life, and and we know this at some level, what gives our life wholeness are people who care about us and people we care about period. That's it. Love. Um, the rest, it's, it's about all these, these four core regrets reveal a need and the need and connection is love. And the thing about love is that to me, at least in my view, at some level, we are over indexed on romantic love. When we think about love, we think mm-hmm. about, about romantic love and we're not thinking about love in the fuller sense, the love we have for, you know, our, I think, forget about the love we have for our kids or our parents, but just the love we have for other people in our lives who are not our romantic partners and who are not our kids, but who are our friends, who are our companions, who are our coworkers and so forth. And, um, and, and so for me, perhaps the sabbatical is a way to avert boldness regrets of the future and connection regrets of the future. And so what stands in the way of you taking that sabbatical? Nothing. I don't Nothing. mean My intellectually. Own, yeah. I don't mean intellect. I know that nothing financially, what's the emotional block? I guess the emotional block, if there is one, I'm not even sure there is an emotional block. It's just, you know, I think there's a logistical Mm -hmm. block and that I have, I have obligations I need to execute before I can actually do that. Now it's possible Mm -hmm. that I can actually keep bringing on those obligations as a way to keep that at bay. But but, but on the other hand, I'm conscious (laughs) of the, 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 I'm conscious of, the dangers of doing that. So that might be a way to, to, to avert that. Well, one of your value systems is to, is to live up to obligations. You say you're going to do something, you do it. Absolutely. That's a huge, I mean, for me personally, that's, that is. So that's a huge belief system. That's a core belief system of mine. Listeners, your mileage may vary. I'm not suggesting that as a, Mm. as a course for everybody else, but for me, absolutely. That's a huge, 
that's hugely important to me. So but let's explore the, that just for let's just stay with this for a moment. You you um, you're intrigued by the possibility of taking a sabbatical. You know that you might be subjected to mistaking motion for meaning. That there is an opportunity, and you're 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 you want to avoid a boldness regret. Mm -hmm. You were drawn into that conversation. You were particularly drawn into the question of complicitness. And so here we are. I'm imagining, I could be wrong. I'm imagining like you listen to Tim Ferriss and you're like, hey, I'm going to take a sabbatical. You're thinking about it. But all those obligations, which feel like real structural things, I have to do these things. And just a little bit of poking, we said, oh, wait, wait, that's actually a belief system. One that's really important for you to hold on to. And so part of the potential tension that might exist here is that if I take the sabbatical, I might have to go up against my stated commitment and obligation. Yeah. My, and, and, and that tension is a real that's a difficult tension to resolve. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's reconcilable. I mean, you know, I can I, I think one can reconcile taking a sabbatical with fulfilling your obligation to be in in Milwaukee on October thirteenth to go do something that you agreed to do a year ago. I mean, I, I think those are I think those are reconcilable. I think the bigger issue is for, for for me and maybe for other people is that is what happens when you're not in motion. Mm, what happens to you? Right. Daniel. How does it feel to be, how does it feel to be not in motion? Daniel, and answer the question. How does it feel to be not in motion? <laughs> how does it feel not to be at least trying to go up and to the right? And, and how me, does it feel for you? Yeah. It feels a little freaky. It right. feels a little unnatural, if you'll pardon that carefully chosen word. Yeah. That is... That is, that is maybe, so it's, a, and it's an interesting philosophical, theological, mm -hmm. epistemological question of when I say natural, which I, you know, is, is, is it mm -hmm. my nature to be in motion or is that something that I foisted on myself? Or and is the it the is learned yes. nature, if you will? Yeah. So where did you learn this? Um, you know what? I, I think part of it is, is that I like being in motion. I like doing stuff. Because when I'm in motion, I'm learning. When I'm in motion, I am. I, I feel like it's some, sometimes I'm contributing. I feel like I'm actually growing. Um, that that for me, not being in motion is 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 in some ways not means I'm not I'm not growing. I, that could be a miscalculation on my part. That I, it might I, be a different. I, I, it might be a different kind of growth that comes from not being in motion. But for I me, being in motion is, is yeah. Being in motion, being in motion is fulfilling. Being in motion is fulfilling because I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm achieving, I'm contributing, I'm doing stuff. I like that. I think I think that's a genuinely held belief, and 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 we benefit, your readers benefit from your curiosity, from this 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 drive around the curiosity, and and learning and growing and and you're probably a really good friend. Because you say what you mean, and you mean what you say, and you deliver. If you said you're going to be in Milwaukee in October, you're going to be in Milwaukee in October. 
That's totally the case. And, and so you're reliable in that way. And I'm just lifting up some of the possible threads that could actually, if you want, um, uh, uh, fuel some of the complicitness in the conditions you say you don't want. Mm-hmm. Right. The thing I think it's really important to understand is is that many of the things that uh, create those tension points are actually positive things. They're not all negative. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so the there's an opportunity, I think, in the tension point to really grow even more and learn even more about oneself so that you're then lifting them up and to reference back to the to my book quoting Carl Jung until you make the unconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate right by by leaning into those tension points you get the opportunity to sort of come back and say why is it so important to me to be in October, to be in Milwaukee in October? I know it's important that I follow through on a contract, but why do I hold that so firmly? And what does it cost me mm. when I hold that so firmly? Because mm-hmm. it may be a cost that um, may go back into the boldness regrets. Does this yeah. have any resonance with you? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, you know, let's, you know, I, I just, I mean, I, I think if you look at these, if you look at these regrets that I've collected from around the world, and is that what what they what do they they reveal? They, as I said, they operate as a reverse image, a photographic negative of the good life. And so, what is the good life? A good life is a life with love. A good life is a life with learning and growth and psychological richness. A good life is a life with some stability. That's foundation regrets. But a good life is also where we're doing the right thing. And for me, for whatever, you know, whatever reason, it's like keeping your word is doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. That if you make a promise, you keep your promise uh, as a and there's a moral there's a moral obligation to that. What was it like when you had to go back to the editor and tell the editor that you weren't going to keep the promise with the first contract? Oh, I was fine on that because I had something because I had something I had something so much better. Like that was like I, I didn't feel like I was betraying. I, I didn't feel like I was betraying a promise. If I had gone back to him and said, you know what, I don't want to write a book, I would have had a trouble with that. I see. Yeah, I see. So I like that. That's an adaptation. Yeah. Like you give yourself a little bit of flexibility around which is you're still meeting the obligation of delivering a manuscript to the editor. Yeah. But yeah, it, uh, yeah. you've grown and what the right manuscript is has changed. Right. 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 Well, I appreciate your um, ending up writing uh, the book you did write because I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I sat down and I didn't stop reading until, you know, my back was just creaky and I understand <laughs> to do the thing. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it because, as I said, you know, at the top, you know, and even in some of the conversations that we've had, you know, uh, now, I think it's a, actually a really relevant message um, for the people who are struggling to sort of find their way as leaders, to, for the people to... We're struggling to find our way as adults, how to navigate this, this space. And I'm particularly um, moved by the universality issue. I think that one of the under 
explored aspects of being human and, and the struggles that we have in being human is the realization that we have empathetic connection. You mm. struggle with regrets. I struggle with regrets. Mm. So let's hang out together and yeah. be human together instead of judging myself because I think you don't have any regrets. We're just going to hang out together and we're going to, we're going to be a little gentle with ourselves. Um, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll start to wrap us up. Um, our conversation was also reminding me of a conversation I had with a dear friend, Parker Palmer, the Quaker writer that um, I often uh, refer to. He just turned 83 and he came on the podcast. Uh, and again, we were talking about his book, On the Brink of Everything, and about basically turning 80 and what life was like for him at that point. And we had this lovely, lovely conversation where we both laughed about the fact that so many people or come come to us and in one form or another ask ourselves uh, mortality related questions like mm -hmm. um, you know what do you regret or uh, what is what is the purpose of life what should we be focused on and we just laughed and we said there's really just a simple question which is have I been kind mm. and. I think that there's something lovely in that, hearkening back to your, your observation about love. Um, can, if, 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 if I can look back on my life and accept the mistakes that I've made, accept the times when I've failed to live up to my aspirational values as a person, but I can say to myself with honesty that in the end, I always try to, or I did my best to move towards kindness to move towards understanding um, that then feels like a life that I can be proud of mm -hmm. uh, regrets and all I agree yeah. I agree I mean it, 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 you know and again I think that regret is, is very clarifying in that in that way because as I mentioned earlier Jerry I have regrets about kindness that tells me something it tells me what I value and the other thing about it on the universality is I go to this database of 19,000 people and I might feel bad that I have regrets about kindness but looking at this database I realize I'm not that special because a lot of people have these <laughs> a lot of people have these regrets and so in what it's I think what it tells us is that a life well lived is a life where we are kind uh, a life where we have people who love us and who who we love and where we treat people with respect and we treat people with dignity and we treat people with kindness. Um, yeah. And, you know, as 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 woo woo as that might sound or as, as sort of almost sugary as that might sound, I do think that those are the components of a, of a life well lived. Um, you know, you mm -hmm. see this sometimes. I mean, David Brooks has a lovely way of putting this where he talks about resume virtues and eulogy virtues. You know, mm -hmm. and so you, th you think about, you know, what what kind of what's on your resume, but also what are people going to say about you at your funeral? And right. what people are going to people people aren't going to say at your funeral. Oh, Jerry had a net worth of such and such. And he sold it. Mm -hmm. They're going to say they're going to testify to your character. They're going to testify to whether you were loved and had people and, and, and loved others. They're going to testify to your kindness. They're going to testify to the contribution you made to lift up other people. That's it. That's it. And, that, and that's what defines us. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific book, but more important, I want to thank you for the work that you've done over these last 20 years. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. 
If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work. You can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, offsite retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to Reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings.